you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, beginning in chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, there should be a pew Bible in front of you that can be found on page uh, 1025. Be reading the first 16 verses. And the word of the Lord says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Thank you, Jay, for the reading of the word of God. Let me ask the Lord to be with us in these few moments. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace to us and thank you for the word of God. As we begin this study today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts over the next months. You'd help us to celebrate the wonder of our Savior, to worship the sovereignty of our King. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word. Thank you for it. Amen. Hope you'll keep your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 1. Jay, thank you for reading. I um, always count it a privilege for someone to teach me how to say all these names. Uh, I've not been able to be in the pulpit for nine weeks, and I am thankful for the time off and uh, to study. I've been ready to preach for about nine weeks to you. Uh, I don't like not preaching, and so as I prepared uh, to come back and, and get us into the Gospel of Matthew 
I was so excited. It was burning in me. I thought we would preach a genealogy so that we could start this together this morning. Uh, So we'll get into the gospel of Matthew together and see where the Lord takes us. Today we begin a journey in which we will rehearse the story of our King. And so I just want to invite you as you think about our beginning today to think about our King, to focus on Him that over the next maybe a year on Sunday mornings we will be in this gospel together a story of Jesus Christ, the story of the one that you and I call King. For many of us and for much of this study it will be rehearsing what we've read, what we've studied, what we've heard preached before. But I want to bring us to this story to put it in the context of the gospel writer Matthew so that you and I would behold the king who will be king forever. Indeed, on the little card that we were talking about what we were going to do in the fall, it simply says the king and his kingdom. And so our king has declared his kingdom. He is inviting us into his kingdom and he is going to rule and reign forever and ever. Matthew's gospel is a story of Jesus. Each of the four evangelists, each of the four gospels that you hold in your New Testament have uh, a unique audience, a unique style, a unique purpose in writing. Each, though, tells the story of the Son of God. Each tells the story of the one who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and rose again defeating death, hell, and the grave on our behalf. Matthew has a particular audience that he's writing to, and we'll look at that over the next coming, uh, coming days and coming weeks as we get into this. But I want to give you a summary statement up front as we get into this gospel. And I think it can be summarized there in a statement that I hope you got on the notes when you came in this morning. Matthew's gospel can be summarized in saying this, Jesus is the sovereign king who comes in the line of Abraham and David to do a couple of things. First, to declare the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus will declare this kingdom that will be forever, the kingdom that we have longed for and looked for since uh, the beginning of time, certainly since Abraham and the promises to him. And so he's declaring the coming of the kingdom of God. He is inviting the house of Israel as well as the Gentiles, as well as the nations to be a part of this kingdom. He's instructing in this uh, uh, gospel, he's showing us how Jesus is instructing his followers about life in the kingdom, but also about preparation for the ultimate coming of the kingdom. You will notice as we read through the gospel of Matthew that Matthew is going to use the terminology kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's kingdom of God. Sometimes it's simply just kingdom. But his focus is on this kingdom that Jesus came to uh, declare and came to say the kingdom of God is here. And yet Matthew will often use Jesus when he's teaching to show us that Jesus is also talking about a kingdom that is yet to come. If you remember with me, we've been in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Numbers. But when you get into the Pentateuch and Exodus and Numbers, you're in this Uh, in-between period in the wilderness. We've said it over and over through the book of Numbers that salvation had been accomplished and yet it was not yet realized. They were in the wilderness in between God delivering them and God taking them to the promised land. Matthew will be a book and the kingdom of God is the concept that you and I are in this in-between time. 
Our Savior has declared the kingdom. He has made the way possible. He's shown you His authority as King by defeating all of the enemies of the kingdom. And yet we have not seen the kingdom come and it's full. But it's coming. And so some of this will be invitation into the kingdom, preparation and living in the kingdom that's to come. Some will be, let's be ready for His return. So it instructs us, He instructs us, the King, about life in the kingdom and preparation for the ultimate coming. And then finally, this book will show us our king defeat the enemies of his kingdom. And so you and I live in this in-between time where salvation has been accomplished and yet there are still enemies of the kingdom of our God. There are still enemies of our king because sin still reigns in this world and it still saturates our lives. And so you and I will see the effects of sin be defeated by our Savior so that when the earth shows its fallenness, Jesus will speak to the storm and it will be quieted. When someone comes with a sickness or a disease, Jesus will speak and they will be healed. When death comes, Jesus will overcome death by coming back from the grave. He will defeat all the enemies of his kingdom and we'll see that in Matthew's gospel because he is the sovereign king and you've already been given a preview of the end of the book when you heard Steve preach last week you got a preview of where we're going when Jesus would stand and say all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me the king has defeated all enemies of the kingdom he has come back from death the final enemy and he says all authority is given to me now Go and make disciples. Teaching them, baptizing them, and I will be with you. That's the promise of our king. That's where we're headed. Our king has defeated every enemy of his kingdom, and his kingdom will be forever. So I invite you this morning into this text because we're coming to a book that will rehearse the story of our great king. So over the coming weeks, you and I will just celebrate together the story of our great king few housekeeping things on your notes before we get there. Just really quickly, who's the author? You would imagine it's Matthew. Your Bible says the gospel according to Matthew. The early church fathers were almost unanimous on Matthew, the tax collector, the former tax collector, the one who was called to be a disciple, follower of Jesus. Uh, both Mark and Luke call him Levi. But Matthew is the author of this gospel. There are some, and you could imagine in our day of... of um, of all this redaction and, and, and textual criticism that there are people that question that today, I think we would go with those who are closest to the time when it's written, and we will agree Matthew is the author, although Matthew never names his, himself in the book. Matthew being the author here, when was it written? There's some debate there as well. I don't know that it's really significant, whether it's 50s or 60s or 70s, but the debate is, uh, could Jesus, as Matthew records, foretell the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and uh, today's uh, critical scholars would say, of course not. No one can know the future. I happen to believe that Jesus is who he says he is in the book of Matthew. And he absolutely declared the beginning from the end. So he knows the future. And I think the date is better uh, with conservative scholars around 50s or early 60s uh, A.D. So we're really early. Uh, it was one of the early church's books. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are some in our church history who would say early church Christianity was Matthean Christianity because Matthew was such the popular gospel in the early, uh, early church, the purpose of the book. 
I quote for you Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 on your notes, the book of the story of Jesus Christ. Of course, the story there, some of your translations may actually say that. I'm using story for the ESV, says the book of the genealogy. The word there could be account of Jesus Christ, the history of Jesus Christ. I think it's more than Matthew 1. I think this is an introduction to the entire book. It's more than an introduction to just these first 16 verses. So what Matthew is saying is what we're getting ready to do is go into a story, the book of the story, the history, the account of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the purpose that Matthew is writing for is to introduce us to Jesus Christ. It is a gospel It is good news that we know about Jesus. He's having this purpose to show us who Jesus is. This is the announcement of news that saves. That is what good news, that's what gospel means. It's the story of Jesus Christ because it's a story of Him bringing salvation, the Messiah, the anointed one from the Old Testament who comes in the line of David to proclaim the kingdom of God, fulfill the promises of God given to Abraham to bless all nations. And so if you'll skip down to verse 21, we'll deal with it next week. But I think this is Matthew's purpose in Matthew 1, 21. She, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Our Savior has come and this is his story, so we rehearse it together. The structure of the Gospel of Matthew is very interesting. There's some disagreement on how to arrange things and how we're to put things together and understand it as far as outline. I've given you a basic outline there uh, with helps from a lot of the commentaries that I've looked at and read. Uh, This would... I can't give anybody credit, so if this one's wrong, I borrowed from a lot of folks. Uh, but if it's wrong, you just go with the ones who are right. Uh, because this is the way that I view the book here and the wonder of uh, Matthew. But what I really want you to see is there is an introduction that gives us the birth and the childhood of Jesus, his preparation for ministry up through chapter 4. We'll deal with that quickly, get into chapter 5, which begins what will be the, the real bulk of the Gospel of Matthew uh, wrapped around five discourses of Jesus or five sermons of Jesus. Perhaps you already know the first one, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And those sermons or discourses of Jesus will be followed up with or prefaced by ministry of Jesus that I think helps us to even understand the sermon and the sermon helps us to understand what Jesus is doing. So uh, Matthew 5 through 7, the first discourse, Matthew 10 Second one, Matthew 13, Matthew 18, and then chapters 23 through 25 are the last discourse. Those are there in that outline. We'll get through them as we go. But I just put that outline before you so that you'll know. Here this morning, we are at the genealogy of Christ. The book of the story of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This genealogy, I want us to look at very quickly together and ask the Lord, why this genealogy in the beginning of Matthew's gospel to teach us today. And so I believe as you look at your notes, I think this is on the other side of the notes that I gave you, there are three distinctives of this genealogy that I want us to talk about. Then with that last distinctive, I want to move into at least two applications, two applications of this genealogy for our lives. There are more. Uh, There's more even than I can grasp and and get into here this morning, but let's look at these together. First, what is the first distinctive of Matthew's genealogy? First, it begins with Abraham. It begins with Abraham. If you've read the Gospels, you'll note that that's a bit different from Luke. If you read the genealogy in Luke, Luke begins with Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam. 
It's kind of different. Luke's, Luke's gospel will say Jesus was the son of, who is the son of, who is the son of, who is the son of, all the way back to Adam. Here, Matthew begins with Abraham and says Abraham is the father of, who is the father of, who is the father of, all the way to Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Matthew doesn't start with Adam. I think there's a purpose there. One of the things you're going to find is distinctive about the Gospel of Matthew is he's writing, I believe, to a Hebrew or a Jewish audience. He's wanting to convince those who are reading his Gospel, this Jesus, he really is in the line of Abraham. And that's significant because God gave all of the promises of the covenant to Abraham. So if you'll remember with me, in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, when we went through the book of Genesis, we start at creation. God in Genesis 1 creates all that is. This includes the man and woman who are rebellious against God. And in their subsequent rebellion on the earth, God destroys a lot, specifically since death is a curse of sin. Then in Genesis 6, He destroys all of mankind and destroys the earth by flood. And starts over with redeeming, saving one family. And that family, who is chosen by God, is still rebellious, still sinful. They don't turn to God. They don't follow God. And so what God does in Genesis chapter 11, He's shown us all of creation. And by Genesis 11, He focuses in on one family. And so out of paganism, out of the Chaldeans, or out of the Babylonians, God chooses one family family and says, I'm going to choose you and through you, I'm going to send hope to the earth so that there will be salvation. I am going to do it for my name's sake to bless the nations. Abraham, I've chosen you and through you, I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to take care of the sin problem. And so he chose from all creation down to one family, and he says, through you, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, I'm going to send him through you, Abraham. And so our story this morning of Jesus begins at Abraham because there's the promises of God. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham to make his name great, to multiply him and make him the father of many nations, and to bring one that would bless all nations. By Genesis 17, God, God uh, uh, re- repeats His covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. He repeats it again in Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, He says to Abraham, Many kings will come from you. And here we are reading the story in Matthew chapter 1 of the many kings that have come from Abraham all the way to Jesus who will be the king forever. It is in the offspring of Abraham that the Messiah was promised and the anointed one who would bring salvation and being king forever. In Genesis chapter 49, so Abraham miraculously has a son through Sarah who is beyond childbirthing age and God gets her pregnant and she has a a son they call Isaac. Isaac has two sons. God chooses Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them God chooses Judah and says, through you Judah, I will bring the king. And so over in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons in verse 10 Jacob is prophesying about the days to come what Matthew is writing about and he says to Judah the scepter shall not 
depart from Judah. The scepter being the kingship. There will always be a king forever. Judah, you will be the one through whom the king will come. Nor the ruler's staff will depart from his feet. So Judah, you are the one. Through you, Jesus is going to come. Why begin with Abraham? Because the promises go back to Abraham. Because God is faithful to what he said he would do to Abraham. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, and you read through this and you're thinking, the Lord is keeping His promise to Abraham. So it begins with Abraham. Second distinctive of this genealogy, it focuses on David and kingship. It focuses on David and kingship. I don't think I have to share with many of you, if any of you, that David is the most well-known king of the nation of Israel and their history. You go down to verse 6, and he says to us in verse 6, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. He's the king. He's the one that Israel looks back to. He's the one that Israel holds up and says, This is the king. All of the ones listed after him, all of these men are kings. They were kings of Israel. They were kings of Judah. And yet David is the one called the king because they're sitting on the throne of David. There's a focus here on David. As you read through this, I didn't have Jay read verse 17, but I want to call your attention down there and let's see how he's even focusing on David here. In verse 17 he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14. There are three groups of 14 in your genealogy here. Three groups of 14. Some of you will notice, by the way, that the genealogy is not complete, that there are names, there are descendants of David, there are descendants that are kings that are not included here. If you go back to the Old Testament, some of those kings were not here. So we have to ask ourselves, why three groups of 14? Because we know, Matthew, that you've intentionally, because you said 14, you've left some of these out. So why would that be? Well, I think there are a couple of things. There was a numerical code that the people would have known. They would have walked through and known this numerical code. It's called gematria. And it was useful sometimes, some would say, to help memorize. So it may be that, that Matthew is helping put together a, a genealogy that we would know from Abraham to David to the deportation to Christ. And we can... Go through that and kind of memorize that. I don't know if you are this kind of person. Some of my students are. Some of my students absolutely hate it, but I'm a list guy. So I, I, I think this way, all right? So if you can tell me there are 14 here and 14, three groups of 14, I got it. I'll go that way. I'm that kind of guy. There's some that are not at all. Matthew is writing maybe so that he helps us in our memorization of, of the history of Israel from Abraham to Christ, I think maybe more than that, the numbers are pointing us to David. So that what I want you to see in this genealogy is David becomes a central character and Matthew is pointing to him even through this numerical code. So, David's name in their numerical code, you would be assigned, each consonant would be assigned a number, David's name. D, V, and D would be added up and be 14. David is the 14th name in the genealogy. David's position and his name both being 14. Matthew is bringing us three groups of 14 pointing us to David. Why? Because he's introducing to us the sovereign king who will sit on David's throne forever and ever. The numerical code would have been known to the people as those who are reading the gospel to point them to David as central to the genealogy, which is leading to Christ. 
Not that it's focused on David, but Christ being the one who is coming to sit on the throne of David. It was not David physically that was going to live forever, but it was David's kingship and David's throne that would be filled forever. And it's Christ who is coming to do that. Let me take just a moment to say, one of my good friends, we're growing even closer uh, all the time, Dr. Quarles is in our service this morning, wrote a book called A Theology of Matthew. I'm going to quote a little bit of it, not direct quote, brother, but I'm going to paraphrase it here for a minute. Uh, but I would just tell you this, I told the 830 service this, Dr. Quarles is a, a scholar on the Gospel of Matthew. He's writing a commentary right now on the Gospel of Matthew. I would challenge you, grab this book. It'll help you understand, read through it with us as we're going through. It'll help you understand Matthew's theology as you read through the book, and it'll clear up all that I mess up for you uh, in the meantime. So, but Dr. Coral says, in case you were thinking that um, we are strange, this is really strange in this numerical code, or that, that we shouldn't read this back into the text, he reminds us that you and I speak in code that we understand all the time. For example, some of you could pull out your smartphones right now and I could open up your text and you would have little codes in there that are not English words, but you know what the code means. I-O-W in other words or L-O-L, laugh out loud or lots of laughs, however you do that, right? Uh, however that looks for you. We know the codes that we write in and that we speak in and the people of Israel, the Hebrews would have known the codes that they would speak in. It would be common language. So when they read this, they would automatically think it would just come out for them. 14, David, 14th name, is pointing to the king who will be king forever. So why does the genealogy focus so much on David? I hope I put these scriptures in your notes. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, David comes to the Lord and he's requesting of the Lord and, and the Lord's prophet. I want to build a house for the Lord. Here I am in this great house of cedar and I want to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord responds to him. And I'm just going to pick out these couple of verses, three of them for you just to read them. But you go read the whole context. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, note David, physical King David, you're going to die. When you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is God speaking to David. Your throne is going to be forever. Certainly not Solomon. Solomon dies too. There are others that will come and they die and they die. Who is going to sit on the throne forever? Matthew is announcing the king that is a forever king. He has come because he overcame death and he's alive today. He will sit on the throne forever. The throne of David. The throne of the promises of our God. He is the one who was promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Not only that, the prophet Isaiah, as he's prophesying to the nation of Israel and he sees the destruction and the judgment of God that's coming to Israel and they wonder, are the promises cut off? Have they ended? The prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says there shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse. The nation of David has been destroyed, but that stump that is there, there shall come forth a shoot from that stump, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who is that? Jesus will come out of the stump of Jesse, just as David came from David uh, from his father Jesse. 
Another Jeremiah chapter 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell secure. And in this is the name by which you will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Perhaps the most significant, Ezekiel chapter 37, when God is bringing through Ezekiel the woes on the leaders of Israel, and telling them that they failed in shepherding the people, and God God says, I myself will come and shepherd the people of Israel. And over in chapter 37, verse 24, he says, My servant David, already dead, it's not physical David, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there, when? Forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Why focus on David? Because the one who has come in the line of David to sit on his throne forever and be king forever, he has come. And this is his story. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Third distinctive. Genealogy includes some unusual people. Of course you know that there are kings here. There are kings that serve the Lord. Josiah came about and tried to bring reform into the people. Zerubbabel, who led the people into, uh, back into the land after exile. was the first king leading them back. Most of these kings that are listed here, though, are just absolutely wicked and evil. They're full of wickedness. For example, if you come all the way down to Jeconiah, read about him in, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 24. Jeconiah was so evil that a curse was put on his line. Most of them, as you read Kings and Chronicles about their leadership, the Bible just says these words, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we have a generation or a genealogy of a bunch of evil kings through whom Jesus is to be born. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but there are also the names of five women listed in this genealogy. I think there are multiple reasons that we have those in there, but let me just walk through them with you and then we'll try to make some application. First one that you see there is Tamar in verse 3. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. She had the twins, Perez and Zerah, that are listed there in the genealogy, but this was through an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law, Judah. Genesis chapter 38. You have Rahab mentioned. Rahab is a prostitute who is there in the wall that housed the spies that came in. Rahab is, in Joshua 2, shown to us. So we have this lady who is a part of Jesus' line who is a prostitute. In verse 5, you have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, and the Moabites were known for their sexual immorality. And at best, we could say she spent a questionable night with Boaz at the feet of Boaz in his room even before they were married. And so she's listed in verse 5. In verse 6, you have the wife of Uriah, as you and I would know as Bathsheba. This is David's wife who was brought into this lineage in Matthew chapter 1. And the reason she's here, I think, probably as you read the Old Testament, the only reason she's included in the lineage at all is because there was adultery and murder that occurred. And so there are questionable things that are going on here. There's some unusual people put in the genealogy, not the least of which is even Mary in verse 16. 
Here Mary is pregnant outside of wedlock. And I'm certain that in the culture there were real questionable circumstances around how did you get pregnant. So we have both men and women here in this list who are evil, who are associated with prostitution, sexual immorality, adultery, incest, murder, and one who claims that she got pregnant without ever sleeping with a man. It's kind of unusual for a genealogy. So why include these? Here are two applications. Why include all of this in a genealogy? I think first I would want to say that it's to display the sovereignty of our great God. To display the sovereignty of our great God. Not only did God work to bring Jesus into the world, to keep His promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, right? Remember God said to Eve, the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. He's keeping that promise, but He's also keeping a specific promise to a specific person, Adam, to say, uh, excuse me, Abraham, to say, Abraham, through your family... Through your line, I am going to bring the Messiah. Jesus is the one who is sent as the offspring of Adam through Judah, through David, to Jesus to bring about salvation. He does this, listen, through sinful people. He even uses the crookedness of men and women to accomplish His sovereign plan. Our God is sovereign. His plan will not be thwarted. It will come about. So when He declares the end from the beginning, when He brings us this promise that Jesus will come and He will defeat the last enemy, death, He will shed His blood so that you can be saved from your sins and He will come again to bring His kingdom in its full and He will reign forever. You and I can know He has even used us and will use us, sinful people, who have been invited to come to Him. Why? Because His promises will not be broken. God is sovereign and He's showing us His sovereign plan in action in these people. So He's displaying His sovereignty even in this genealogy. Secondly, He's declaring His mission. I believe He's declaring His mission here. If we were just to have the men listed, all we would have were children of Abraham who are Jews. God has sovereignly brought into this plan those who are Gentiles. Because the invitation to come to His kingdom, the mission of our God was never just Abraham's physical descendants. It was always the world. And so in Rahab and Ruth, you have those who are Gentiles. And Tamar and Bathsheba, I think we could say they're most likely Gentiles. And God is showing us that His mission includes those who are sinful, those who are wicked, kings, All of us, God is not only interested in sending the Savior through Abraham for Abraham's offspring. He's reminding us that salvation is coming through Abraham's seed, but it is for all nations. And so this morning we begin a story of our King who's been sent by our sovereign God. Verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the son of Abraham. I end with this. In both verse 1 and in verse 16, you have our king called Jesus and Christ. The book of the story of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called 
Christ. Just want to focus on those names for a moment, and then we'll pray. Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. The Lord is our salvation is what it means, and it reminds us even of the one that we were talking about when we were back in the book of Numbers when God had told Moses, you're not going into the promised land, but I want you to appoint a leader that will succeed you and will take lead the people into the promised land. Joshua was his name. And I told you then, Joshua is pointing us to Jesus, the one who is the true and greater Joshua appointed to lead His people into the promised land, here into the kingdom of God. We have Yahshua. We have Yahweh saves. We have the Lord is our salvation in Jesus. He has come. But not only is He Jesus, He is Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. The Old Testament is full of the promise of a Messiah to come and deliver His people. And in Jesus, we have Him here and we are getting ready to look at his story together. The one who saves, the promised one, he is the son of David, king forever, the son of Abraham, fulfilling the promises of our great God. We begin this story of our king and we're immediately reminded God saves and he keeps his promises. Let's worship our king together.